Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The presenting sponsor of the Can We Please Talk podcast is now Bones Coffee. Nick, BonesCoffee.com. It's the best place to get a cup of coffee. Tell the people about it. Come on. I know I know. everyone knows how big of a coffee snob you are. Exactly. Um, everyone can go, go back to some previous episodes. That's right. First and foremost about Bones is two, the two different avenues. Folks, if you are a fan of single blend coffee, like from countries like Sumatra, from Colombia, Costa Rica, they got you. So if you're about that type of coffee life, great. If you are a blends person, and most of you are, you go to these other places, and you're like, oh, I want like a little hazelnut, a little vanilla. They got you. They got sampler packs. They got gear. Folks, if you are a fan of breweries, you like that aesthetic, like every blend has its own logo. That's Bones Coffee. Bones right. Coffee brings the aesthetic to the coffee space. And we're all about it here. Can we please talk? Listen, from 12-ounce bags, Nick mentioned it, sample packs, single serve, You've got single origin, decaf, cocoa. You've got gear from mugs, apparel, uh, tumblers on there, tote bags, hats. All you have to do is go to bonescoffee.com right now. Buy whatever coffee you want, buy whatever gear you want from them. And when you get to checkout, enter in the promo code, can we please talk all one word? Can we please talk? You're going to get 15% off the entire purchase. It's that easy. Bonescoffee.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. I'm proud to do this show, my man. I'm Nick Saveri. Oh, that's right. Listen, we're almost 80 episodes in. We're, we're still grinding them out, folks. On the program today, from Russia with love, discussing what's happening if Russia and the Ukraine 
is national security and intelligence reporter over at Foreign Policy Magazine. Amy McKinnon is going to be joining us on the program. She's going to break down everything that's been happening in the region. Nick is laughing because that was a great title that I made. Such this, a dope name. This episode. This episode. <laughs> it's so dope. <laughs> and then later on in the program, Nick and I are going to discuss the Brian Flores situation happening, the class action lawsuit against all the teams that Brian Flores is alleging are, are you know, racist, let's, let's, for, for lack of a better phrase, and all of that that's happening in the NFL. And we're going to be playing some clips about a firm that's doing something to actually help with the racial disparity in coaching hires and, and hires of minority candidates in the National Football League. But first, joining us now to talk about all the escalating issues that are happening between Russia and the Ukraine because Nick and I know nothing about it, is Amy McKinnon. She's an award-winning national security and intelligence reporter over at Foreign Policy. Amy, Mike Leon, thank you so much for uh, hopping on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. You know, Amy, um, one of the things I think about, and the reason why Nick and I started this program, was really to inform and educate and learn more about things that we're uneducated in. Uh, Mm -hmm. Specifically, Russia and the Ukraine, uh, I know a lot of people know that this is like a special relationship between the two countries, not only from an economic standpoint, but from citizens that live there that speak both languages. Can you explain for our audience, give us the the airplane view, I like to call it, the 30,000 foot view of what's happening in the region now and why is it that tensions are escalating? Sure. So um, I saw someone joke about this the other day, but it depends who you ask where they start the timeline of this, because in some ways, this is a story which is hundreds of years in the making, decades in the making, um, or, or years in the making. But I suppose I'll start in um, in 2013, um, which is when the former Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, um, who was you know, notoriously corrupt, uh, rejected an association agreement with the European Union. Um, and that's where all of this bega- begins. It's with a kind of boring sounding document, um, an association agreement. Um, but for many Ukrainians, when he rejected that, it was um, a diversion of, of the future that they saw for Ukraine. They saw you know, Ukraine moving closer to the West, moving closer to the European Union. Um, and by extension, what that represents for many people in this region is greater prosperity, greater security, um, you know, uh, stronger democracies, um, you know, better futures for, for them and their children. And so this really was a kind of fundamental and, and existential issue for many Ukrainians. And many people uh, went out into the streets in the capital in Kiev, um, eventually ousted the country's uh, president. There was a revolution which came to be known as the Revolution of Dignity. And while there was this all, all of this political upheaval going on, um, Russia and the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, I think saw an opportunity to take advantage of the chaos, which is really kind of a central MO of, of Russia's foreign policy, is they're very quick to react to try and uh, intervene where they can to turn things in their favor. So they took advantage of this chaos to annex the Crimean Peninsula, um, which is a very beautiful uh, peninsula off of the um, eastern coast of southeastern coast of Ukraine, um, but also to ferment unrest in the Donbass in regions in eastern Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk, um, where they backed uh, uh, separatists, um, but they also sent in Russian regular troops. Um, And eventually those regions uh, broke away to form these unrecognized kind of self-governed so-called republics. Um, And what that has done is 
you know, there's been a simmering war now for the past eight years um, between the Ukrainian army and between these, these Russian-backed breakaway regions. But it has also, in doing that, the Kremlin has kind of kneecapped Ukraine's ability to move to the West and to join these international institutions because um, both the EU and NATO, which both of which, you know, the Ukrainian government has said it is very keen to join, um, uh, are very hesitant and very unwilling, I think, to accept countries that have ongoing ongoing conflicts, ongoing territorial disputes. And so um, that's kind of the, the short but still quite long answer, um, which, which leads us to where we are today. You know, and I think it perfectly feeds into because obviously there's, as of this taping, there's been some breaking news that has taken President Biden's attention in terms of what happened in Syria with mm. a top ISIS leader that's been killed. But I wanted to ask you, um, what's your assessment read on the U.S.'s response so far? You wrote a recent article about Lithuania asking for more troops in the region. We've heard President Biden on a bunch of different pressers now being asked different things. The White House had to correct something that he said recently in one of the pressers. Um, he just recently authorized sending troops um, to Europe, more troops to Europe. Uh, NATO has started mobilizing more troops. What, what for, for our audience that lives here that doesn't really understand some of this, what is your overall read on what the U.S. should be doing, is doing, can do? Um, so, so far, the U.S. has pursued uh, two tracks uh, in the midst of this crisis. Um, deterrence and diplomacy um, are the words which, which we hear used most often. Um, deterrence has taken the form of building, um, putting together packages of sanctions, which they have said will go far beyond anything that has been imposed on Russia in the past, and working with allies and partners in Europe to coordinate on those sanctions. We don't know exactly kind of to the letter what those sanctions will be. The US doesn't tend to preview them, um, but we have a pretty good sense of what that will look like. It would look like sanctions on Russian state banks. Um, they've also spoken about potentially um, putting export controls on certain uh, certain technologies so that, the, the you know, to make it to make life much more difficult for the Russians in getting hold of things like uh, semiconductors, which are used in in pretty much any technology these days, and that would severely handicap the Russian ability to develop um, kind of new technologies for defense and national security, um, which are two two industries that um, Vladimir Putin has really prioritized. Um, so there's the, the kind of the the deterrence package is putting together this package, saying, you know. If you invade Ukraine, this is what's going to happen, and it's going to extract real pain in the immediate and kind of mid to long term on the Russian economy. And then the other uh, uh, kind of bucket is the is the diplomacy issue. We saw very early on uh, senior U.S. officials um, having phone calls with with European partners and and sharing intelligence, declassifying intelligence, sharing it with partners, sharing it with Ukrainians as well to let them know what they were seeing, to make them aware of the threat, um, but also sharing it with the public. I mean, it's been, it's, the U.S. has pursued a kind of interesting strategy in all of this in that um, they've been very forward and they've been very candid in sharing what they're seeing with the public and sharing estimates of the, of the troop buildups, of the movements. Um, and I think part of that has been to kind of lift the curtain on, on Russian activity because the, you know, during the first invasion of Ukraine, but also in other conflicts um, such as Syria, but also in, in you know, in the involvement of uh, 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 Russian mercenaries in Africa, you know, one of the, one of the ways, one of the kind of methods that the Kremlin has used for several years now has been a screen of plausible deniability of, of, um, 
you know, of doing things kind of behind the curtain, these kind of so-called gray zone tactics, hybrid warfare, um, uh, of trying to deceive, you know, and be dishonest about about what it's up to. And, and I think that that threw the international community off a little bit. You know, the first time they invaded Ukraine, they denied all knowledge. You know, there was news reports of, of Russian troops coming home, having been killed in combat. Um, you know, there was uh, the so-called little green men, right? Men in, in green uniforms wandering around Crimea and with no insignia on them. Um, I mean, who else could they have been but Russian forces, right? But um, the Russians denied it. And I think that that kind of threw everybody off a little bit. But I think this time the U.S. has been very aggressive about about calling things out and, and, and attributing what they're seeing uh, back to Russia where, where that's possible. So that's been, um, that's kind of the, the two tracks which which the U.S. has pursued so far in this. You know, just as you were saying some of that, and then you, you had mentioned Putin uh, in the last response. And I started thinking, um, because I recently saw, oh, this wasn't recently, this was probably a few years ago about Oliver Stone and obviously the documentary that he did on Showtime with, with, and the interviews that he did, I believe, mm. with Putin. And he's always mentioned on interviews that uh, Putin is the U.S.'s boogeyman, right? That that the U.S. maybe makes too much out of him. Globally, do, do we seem less concerned about Russia than we may have been in previous generations? And and how concerned, almost like a two-parter, how concerned are you about some American politicians, even people like, like an award-winning director, um, uh, who seem sympathetic to Russia or at least, at the very least, unwilling to emphasize the threat of what Putin is doing? I think there has been a tension in the way everybody views Russia because depending on, and this, this extends, you know, from the public, but to policymakers and to kind of academics and the expert community as well, because, um, well, for one thing, Russia has evolved and has changed drastically over the past 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, during the 90s, when everyone was talking about the end of history, um, you know, there really was a sense that the Cold War was over, the the US and the kind of liberal international order and capitalism had won the day and that, that you know, that we'd kind of settled the question of what was the best model. Um, and in the 90s, you know, Russia was incredibly weak, their economy was in free fall. Um, you know, its political leadership was was chaotic. Um, and this was, you know, the Soviet Union was a formidable global player. And that for a lot of Russians, including for Vladimir Putin, uh, was a real shock. Um, and I think he felt very um, abandoned by the West and let down that they didn't step forward and, and pursue some kind of a, a Marshall Plan for, for Russia and the former Soviet Union, like we saw um, for Germany after the Second World War. So Russia, but, you know, since then in the 2000s, uh, with rising oil prices, but also to an extent with Putin's leadership as well. You know, the Russian economy has grown, it has strengthened, um, its military has evolved, its military is much stronger than it was. And so, you know, Russia has been has been evolving, has been strengthening. I mean, it's not the Soviet Union, it's, it's not China, but it's still a, um, I think people have struggled to gauge the degree of the threat that Russia may pose on the world stage and the role that they play on the world stage. Because you simultaneously hear people say, well, the Russian economy is the size of Spain's and we're not that worried about Spain uh, disrupting the global order. But at the same time, I think uh, that underestimates the power that Russia has to be a major regional disruptor if it 
you know, if it so chose to, and that's kind of what we're all waiting to see, right? Is it going to launch a major renewed attack on Ukraine? That would be a major disruption to the to the regional order. And so I think people have, um, uh, you kind of have to balance these two, uh, what seem like two in ways conflicting thoughts in your head at the same time, right? If you go to Russia, especially if you go to the regions outside of Moscow, um, you know, go to, to rural provinces, I mean, uh, like the roads are a mess, schools are a mess, the ho- you know, hospitals uh, are grossly underfunded, public funds are siphoned off from corruption. And it, you know, and I think even Russians themselves, I think, struggled sometimes to see how, you know, how come a government which can't, you know, build and sustain, you know, a functioning road system in my in my region, how can that be a major disruptor to global order? But the, you know, the answer is that it can. And so it's, I think some people um struggle with uh with, with toggling those uh, those two thoughts at the same time sometimes. Yeah, somebody who was just in Spain a few years ago, uh, I'm not worried about Spain invading anybody. Uh, <laughs> sure, but then also right. Spain hasn't invaded anybody. Right. You know, the other, the other thing is that, you know, Russia has. Um, right. They attacked Georgia in 2008. They kind of de facto occupied 20% of Georgia's territory. They annexed Crimea in 2014, which was the, the first forcible, uh, uh, the first attempt at a forcible transfer of land since World War II, uh, they backed separatists in eastern Ukraine. Like they have, they have shown repeatedly, and that's not to mention things like poisoning of Sergei Skripal in the UK, um, poisoning of Navalny with with Novichok. I mean, this isn't poisoning and with some household thing. This is, you know, chemical weapons, um, and so they, you know, they. They do have a track rec- record of being incredibly disruptive and, and um, have the capacity to really, I think, kind of shock us at times with what they're willing to do to achieve their goals. You know, you kind of fed into a, a follow up there because and, and I may mispronounce his name here. You may get a little Spanish accent with you, but uh, but Dimitro Guleba, I believe, the U- Ukraine's minister of foreign affairs. I know he said recently in an NPR mm-hmm. story. And I wanted to get your take on this because he said if Russia succeeds here in the Ukraine, it, it will send a clear message to everyone who wants to rewrite the rules on which the world is based, that the U.S. and Democratic coalition led by the U.S. are incapable to maintain the current world order. I know you said something similar to that. Would How, how would you assess what he said uh, recently? I think he's I think he's right. You know, um, the U.S. and Europe have spoken at length about supporting Ukraine's sovereignty, its territorial integrity, um, its uh, its freedom to choose, its security alliances, its democratic, uh, uh, um, the deepening of its, uh, of its democracy. Um, at the same time, of course, the US and Europe have both said, you know, they're not gonna send troops to, um, uh, uh, to back Ukraine in the event of a Russian invasion. But, you know, I think if, if you know, if Russia were to invade and to um, to reignite, say reignite. I mean, the war has been going. The war has been has been simmering for several years now. But to um, to make a major assault on Ukraine, I think it would lead a lot of countries to to question: Well, who is standing up for these values, and how do we how do you stand up for these values in the face of major powers which are willing to use force how you know it's essentially a question of uh values coming toe to toe with brute military force potentially um and i think there are a lot of countries and a lot of regions in the world 
where that will set a very scary precedent um, for people on the on the values side of the equation. You know, we've talked ad nauseum so far about Russia as as relates to news segments, right? Like uh, A block here, Russia is about to invade Ukraine, blah, 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 blah. Um, what do you feel has been underreported from the U.S. media perspective about Russia overall? And do you feel like there's been some fatigue because of the Mueller investigation, you know, the 2016 and 2020 elections with potential Russian interference? Do you feel like some of that has permeated and, and now has kind of distilled the way Americans are viewing or at least the coverage that they're getting of Russia? Like, what do you feel is something that's missing that can really draw attention to say, hey, this is a serious thing for folks? Good question. I think I think a lot of what gets missed is the, the complexities of Russia domestically, um, the situation going on within Russia, within the Russian political system, how that factors into Putin's thinking. Um, and I think, you know, a phrase that you often hear from uh, experts on Russia is that, you know, it's also Russia's, this is kind of goes back to what I said earlier about holding two seemingly contrasting thoughts in your head at the same time. Russia's also not 10 feet tall. You know, the system has its vulnerabilities. Putin has its vulnerabilities. I mean, uh, you know, Authority. You know, he's been in power now since 2000. I, I think, you know, I know I sound like I'm contradicting myself, but much as you know, I said, you know, Russia, Russia does have the capacity and has shown to have the capacity to be an incredibly disruptive power, um, regionally and to, frankly, to an extent globally. I mean, look at the um, the panic that they caused here through election interference. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think we tend to portray. Uh, Putin as this like all-knowing, uh, all-seeing, uh, evil Bond villain uh, who is everywhere all the time, uh, almost this kind of like godlike figure who knows who knows what we're thinking and what our next move is, and that and that's just not true. Um, in reality, he is uh, he has his own domestic challenges. Uh, he has to balance the competing interests of the security elites of the oligarchs. Um, all authoritarian leaders, no matter how powerful they are, um, have to keep the elites on their side and to balance those those conflicts. Um, but he's also just very, he's very opportunistic. I mean, a lot of what Russia has done over the past 10, 15 years has been responding to events, has been laying the groundwork. I think they're very good at, at seeing future opportunities of kind of laying the seeds and then where um, there is an opening of, um, of moving in and moving in astonishingly quickly. Um, we kind of saw that in, in Kazakhstan at the beginning of the year um, where there was mass unrest there that, you know, within a few days, uh, a Russian-led security alliance, the CSTO, had approved troops to go in. And that has, you know, there's a lot of questions about, well, how does that leave the Kazakh leadership now beholden to Russia? And, you know, that's an astonishing speed of decision-making that within a few days there was a decision made to, I mean, to, de to, to de deploy troops, not in an offensive capacity, but in a quote-unquote peacekeeping capacity. Um, and that's just the kind of speed of decision-making which um, Western leaders, I think, um, struggle, struggle to match. You know, uh, before we let you go, I know you mentioned off air to me that you're getting ready to travel to the region and go to Kiev. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Uh, there was an NPR thread. I don't know if you follow this on Twitter of how to actually pronounce Kiev. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, 
put on your prognosticator's hat in a few weeks from now, uh, when you return back, what 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 is going to be happening in the region? What will be the news coverage and the news cycle be saying about what happened with Russia and Ukraine? That's a good question. And just one which I, in all honesty, cannot answer because, you know, where we're at now, Russia has massed over 100,000 troops at the border. They're sending more troops into Belarus, which is to the north of, of Ukraine and very close. Belarus, the southern border is very close to the Ukrainian capital. Um, no one is, no, I think no one knows what Putin is going to do. And Putin himself may yet not even know what he's going to do. And anybody who tells you what they think Putin is going to do, you know, is full of hot air. The best we can do is kind of make um, calculations and kind of predictions based on past behavior, based on what we're seeing. But even then, um, you know, I, I do worry that things are trending in a very disturbing direction. Um, that kind of mobilization, you know, it's expensive, it's costly, um, it's been hugely disruptive. Um, you don't do that if you don't really want something. And that's something that the Russians really want is for Ukraine to never join NATO and to have written guarantees of that. And that's something which the US and NATO is just not willing to give. They're not willing to sign away Ukraine's uh, future, essentially, um, and a future ability to join security alliances. Um, well, what are you expecting to see when you when you go to the region now uh-huh. uh, over these next couple of weeks? What, it, what, what are some things that you're looking at that you can report back uh, to the American people? I think it's going to be, I mean, most immediately, the meeting between uh, Putin and Xi Jinping uh, on Friday. Um, It's going to be interesting to see what the outcomes of that are, whether she, I mean, I'm not a China expert, but my sense is from speaking to people who do know China better is that I think she does not like this disruptive style of Putin's. And I think it will be interesting to see whether he's able to, to kind of talk some sense into the Russian president, essentially, because Russia will be very, will be more dependent on China in the event that they do attack and are subject to to US sanctions. So I think that's one thing that I'm tracking. Another is the, uh, is these kind of quote unquote military exercises in Belarus. Um, How many troops are they moving in? What kind of equipment are they moving in? Um, I think those exercises are scheduled to end on February 20th, which is also the same day that the Winter Olympics ends, which has, uh, you know, some reading, some people who are reading the tea leaves kind of look at that and say, hmm, that's a, that's a mighty coincidence. Um, people, I mean, people are, analysts are kind of looking to the second half of February as when the Russians may do something. Um, but the other thing I would also say is that we still don't know what that something will look like, right? That, um, there are several ways that this could pan out. It could be an escalation of fighting in the Donbass and eastern Ukraine. It could be an attempt to push further into those territories in the east. Um, it could be an attempt to circle Kiev. Kiev is not terribly well protected, and there's now a lot of Russian troops massing just to the north. Um, there's all kinds of scenarios which people are discussing. It could be a cyber attack. There could be kind of domestic destabilized effort destabilization efforts. The Ukrainian government said this week that they'd arrested a whole bunch of people who were um, alleged, alleged to be planning provocations in the country. So that's the other part of this, is that this is not necessarily going to be, it could be, but I think it's not necessarily going to be um, an old-fashioned 
troops surging across the border, marching across the country, just you know, full on occupation. Um, I think it will be a kind of a little bit of a combination of all of the above, a little bit of the gray zone tactics, a little bit of the disinformation, internal political destabilization, um, potentially some, you know, invasions, incursions, um, airstrikes are, you know, a lot of people fear airstrikes could be a big component of this because that's a major advantage the Russians have. So there's going to, I think in the event that Russia does, does try and move in, I think it's, there's going to be a lot of moving parts as to what that will look like. Amy McKinnon, she's a national security intelligence reporter, an award-winning one. All right, put some respect on <laughs> her name. Uh, over at foreignpolicy.com. Check out her work on foreignpolicy.com, uh, foreignpolicy.com, excuse me, and pay to get past that paywall, folks, okay? Because it's worth it. Uh, Amy, I wish you all the best and safe travels over to the region. And when you get back and continue the, the great work uh, in terms of covering all this for the American people. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. I enjoyed our conversation. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. All right. Our thank yous there to Amy McKinnon, national security and intelligence reporter, an award-winning one. I mentioned it before. Award-winning. She is fantastic. Put some spec on the name. That's right. I said that there in the in the in the interview. Foreignpolicy.com. And like I mentioned, in all seriousness, you know, Nick and I have talked about this before about paying for journalism. Um, that's the way everybody's moving. Pay subscriptions. You get hit with a paywall. You're like, should I click on it? Should I learn more about it? Yes, you should. You, you really should. And the what she was able to break down there and articulate about, and you could just tell, I mean, you know, she's a British uh, correspondent. She's um, British origins, obviously. She's she's from over there across the pond. She was telling me about, you know, all fair, how she was getting ready to head over to the Ukraine to cover more of this. Um, she's very well versed in the region and uh, all of the activities in the lead up from 2013, 2014, the previous Ukrainian administration. Um, everything that Putin's been doing in the region, she was able to break all of that down. Nick, some of your takeaways from not only the the, the topic and what's happening between Russia and the Ukraine and what Russia has been doing in the region over the last eight or nine years, but Amy overall and, and her work. Yeah, one of the first things that comes to mind is that she does an amazing job of being very clear with what the United States' reaction right now to you to the conflict is. You know, we understand through that conversation you both had. And I'm just going to take a pause here and just shout that interview out. You know, I had a chance to listen to it. Obviously, we're debriefing on it now. Um, that was textbook. Folks, if you are in journalism school, if you're thinking about journalism school, if you are doing any type of interviewing for whatever work you do professionally, that was a perfect way to do the interview. We knew everything about Amy. We knew everything about her work. Mike's questions. Yes. You know, we obviously collaborate on the questions. You just hit the spot like people left informed. So anyway, um, but yeah, shout out to you both for an awesome interview. Well, appreciate but, that. You you know, a lot of the script, you know, we let people in on how the sausage is made here. Nick with some great questions there uh, for Amy. Absolutely. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, so part of that also is just, I mean, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me was the understanding that, and I think that Amy hit on it. I think there's hopefully in future conversations with her and or others around this conflict 
Russia capitalizes on political unrest. You know, she said that in the interview about that this actually works for Putin. Um, and one, and it connects to something else she, that she brought up too is that, you know, she dispelled in that interview a perception we have of Putin as an autocrat, a person who's just running things in Russia. And the reality is that's not true, that he's actually trying to strike a political balance to ultimately keep himself in power. And he's been in that way since 2000. But they're like it, her way of breaking it down makes it sound as though, you know, Russia's not necessarily on equal political footing. It's not all driven by one person, um, and I, I, which was just opening eye-opening for me because i have had that perception of, of of the strength of putin but you know from someone who's been in the field it's actually much more complicated than that and you know something that also came up too was putin, kind of the sort of an origin story about putin you know she talked about you know putin was one of those in russia noticing that with western withdrawal of support from the fall of the soviet union in the late 80s early 90s you know russia sounded a little like afghanistan you know with Western support being pulled out and this country in shambles wondering, well, what the hell are we going to do? And then, you know, left to its own devices, you start to see a political engine building. And now it ultimately leads to, you know, Vladimir Putin being now the leader, you know, for the past 20 years, it was just all sorts of insightful. As I was listening, just a bunch of just observations came up to me, but those are the ones that really come to the top of the list as far as my takeaways. Yeah. You know, I, the, the big takeaway a couple for me. One about Putin not being 10 feet tall. You know, I thought that was very well said. And I, I think it's spot on. I think, you know, I've meant, I made the point in the interview about Oliver Stone, and he's not the only person that has said that. Um, but I'm, I, I think more somebody of notoriety that's not a political commentator like him, even though he's done political docs, et cetera, et cetera. But um, for him to say that and her to kind of, you know, she she mentioned it, it's two tracks, right? Like, there is something there, right? There is something to what he's doing in the region, or at least trying to do the vacuum that he's filling. But then there's also the part of like, yeah, but Russia's economy is like the size of Spain and like, <laughs> and like they're in ruins themselves. So like, you know, I, I, there was a bunch of takeaways. Like I said, read all of her work on foreignpolicy.com. It's really great. Um, she does a fantastic job covering everything that's been happening in the region over the last, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years. But um, she's very well versed in it. We were super appreciative of her coming on the pod. Let's get into our final segment. Um, the news that's been emanating from the National Football League this week. Uh, if you don't know what what's been happening, former Miami Dolphins coach Brian Flores. Um, and, you know, actually, before we even get into Brian Flores, you know, we normally don't do that many sports topics on here, but we like to do topics when they kind of cross over. Right. And and Brian Flores uh, was recently the, the Dolphins head coach, and he alleged in this class action lawsuit that was filed recently that there was racism in the hiring practices of three NFL teams in specific, uh, one that he had interviewed with just recently or was about to. I'll get into that in a second. One that just recently let him go after back-to-back -back winning seasons uh, of 10 and 6 and 9 and 8, respectively. And then another one that he interviewed with a few years ago and the, prof the professionalism or lack thereof when they met him for the interview. I want you to take a listen first uh, to Flores as he made the circuit of, of television interviews this past week. He was on CBS this morning with, with Gail King and Nate Burleson and Matt Crew. He was with Mike Greenberg on Get Up on ESPN uh, with his attorney. So if you hear another voice that's not Brian Flores, it's going to be his attorneys. But take a listen to these clips. So last week, um, I interviewed for the Giants position. Um, I was set to interview on Thursday, the, the Monday prior. 
uh, before before I interviewed, I received a text message uh, from Bill Belichick saying congratulations on the Giants, basically, essentially congratulations on the Giants job. Um, uh, there was a little bit of back and forth. Um, we have the text messages there on the screen. Yeah, there was okay. some back and forth and some confusion uh, because yeah. you haven't sat down with the Giants yet. I have not sat down with the Giants. There was some back and forth and I, I just uh, I asked him, Is this, are you, are you talking to the right Brian? Mm. Um, and uh, as you, you've seen them through the text messages, he was actually uh, uh, thought he was texting Brian Dayball. Who they ended up hiring. Yes, sir. So at that point, how did that make you feel knowing that you were walking into an interview where a decision might have already been made? Uh, it was a range of emotions. Uh, humiliation, uh, uh, disbelief, um, uh, anger. Um, I've worked so hard to get to, to, um, to where I am from a, uh, in football to become a head coach. Um, put 18 years in, in this league and it was uh, uh, to, to to go on at what was going to be a, what, what felt like or what was a sham interview, I was, uh, I was hurt. What was the tipping point for you through your experiences that made you feel this was something you needed to do? Well, I mean, just, you know, I've been on, you know, several interviews over the years. Um, and look, I mean, this is, we didn't have to file a lawsuit for, for the world to know that there's an, an issue from a hiring and firing um, um, Practices so in the National Football League. Why did that, that's um, correct. A I lot of people this, yeah. have pointed this out. So why did you feel you needed to do this? Because we need change. That was, that was, that was the number one reason. Um, and I know there's, there's a sacrifice, there's risk to that, but um, at the end of the day, um, we need change. We need change. Um, I, I know many very capable um, black coaches, um, some of my staff who I know um, if given an opportunity or when given an opportunity, they're going to go and do a great job on their interview. Um, and I would just hate for that uh, to, be a, to be a waste. Uh, and I think, you know, we need to change the hearts and minds of, of the people making those decisions. That's why, we're, that's why, you know, we filed the lawsuit. Who are those people? Who specifically do you think needs the change? Uh, the owners of the NFL. All of, um, whom, all of whom are obviously white. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I'm a lawyer, obviously, but I mean, sometimes you need litigation to create change. I mean, the Rooney Rule didn't work. Um, we now have less black head coaches than when the Rooney Rule started. And, you know, Brian thought long and hard about it. And yeah. litigation's not for everyone, but he stepped forward. Um, he's been referred to as the Rosa Parks of the NFL. <laughs> and it's a testament to his character. And the litigation will create change, either because we're going to litigate the case to the end, or the NFL is going to now do the right thing faced with litigation. Okay, let's get into the, everything around the alleged suit um, and, and why this is important, because this happens not only in the National Football League, and obviously that's just a microcosm of the system overall, but this happens you know, everywhere in, in corporate America. And we get into this conversation of, hey, shouldn't people be allowed to hire who they want to hire, but also it's about getting opportunities. And I'm going to play a clip later on from somebody who's working with the National Football League to try to get more actual opportunities. But let's get into Flores' suit. Okay. Like I mentioned, he's suing the NFL and three teams, the Dolphins, the Broncos, and the Giants. He filed a 58-page lawsuit uh, in Manhattan Federal Court last Tuesday. It's a class action suit. Uh, so basically, He's alleging that a couple things on the three different teams. First, he's alleging that the Giants interviewed him last month for their head coaching vacancy. 
for no other reason than to comply with the NFL's Rooney rule. If you don't know what the NFL's Rooney rule is, former Steelers owner Dan Rooney at the time set up this rule, uh, which requires teams to interview minority candidates for their open positions, right? And the league has amended the rule in recent years. And now it says teams must hold at least an in-person interview with at least one external minority candidate for any general manager position or head head coach opening position. So basically, um, and he mentioned it there in the clips, he got a text message from his former employer, his former coach, Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots, the great head coach there. Um, and the text said, hey, congratulations. I heard that you got the job, you know, with with the Giants. And he was like, how did you hear? You know, like, I haven't even interviewed with them yet. And, you know, and back and forth, he was kind of like, Bill Belichick was, I want to surmise this here. He was kind of like, no, you know, I heard that you're their guy. And he goes, are you sure you're talking to Brian Flores or Brian Dabble? Brian Dabble, who is a white uh, coach for the Buffalo Bills and assistant. Bill Belichick made a mistake and was actually texting the wrong Brian in his phone. Okay. Um, That on its surface is funny. The situation entirely is not funny. And you heard Brian Flores articulated there of like how he felt after learning that. But so he's basically in the suit, he's introducing those text messages to say, there's an example of, he had not even gone on the interview yet with the giants. So this interview process was a sham because they had already made their mind. They already had their person that they were going to select and they were only interviewing him to, you know, uh, comply with the rule that's been in place with the league. Now he's suing two other teams, his former employer, the dolphins. He's alleging that the owner of the, of the, of the dolphins, Stephen Ross attempted to incentivize him to tank, meaning lose games on purpose shortly after he was hired in 2019. The Dolphins this year started out pretty poorly at like one and eight, I believe. And then they ended up winning eight of their last nine to finish the season nine and eight, right? Flores is alleging in his suit that Flores was offered $100,000 for every loss in that 2019 season so the Dolphins could improve their draft position. Uh, And when the team was winning games late in the season, Dolphins general manager, Chris Greer, again, this is according to the suit told him that Stephen Ross, the owner, was really mad that they were having on-field success and it was compromising the team's draft position. So that's two parts of it, of the two teams, Giants and Dolphins, respectively. The third team is the Denver Broncos. Now, in that part of the suit, Flores is alleging that the Broncos, on their way to interviewing Flores during the interview process on January 5th in 2019, this is when the Broncos' head coaching job was open, that they showed up about a couple of hours late A few of the team executives appeared to be inebriated from the night before, even though the interview process lasted about three and a half hours with five team executives, Flores felt like it wasn't a a real interview, given the way the executives appeared lucid in that interview, appearing like they had just been out the night before. And he felt like he didn't get a fair shake. And the Broncos actually ended up hiring a whitehead coach, Vic Fangio, who they just recently fired this past offseason. So after only three seasons at the helm there. So the lawsuit with Flores is from Widger Law LLP. It's the firm representing him. Their statement was, we hope to shine a light on the racial injustices that take place inside the NFL. I want to give some metrics here first before we actually give our takes and then play a soundbite here from uh, former Pro Bowl cornerback James Hasty, who was on my sports pod talking about this situation and what his consulting firm is now trying to do with the league. But this past season, there's 32 NFL head coaching jobs. 20% turnover happened in the league this year. Seven openings came about this year. Seven openings. 
Five of them so far have been filled by white candidates. The sixth one is rumored to be another white candidate that will receive that position. And the seventh is still unclear, of which, by the way, Flores is a candidate for one of them. That right there, as the data shows, there's only one black head coach in the National Football League right now, Mike Tomlin of the Pittsburgh Steelers, which, funny enough, the Rooney rule was from the former Steelers owner, like I mentioned. And then Robert Salah, who's uh, of Egyptian faith, uh, excuse me, Muslim, um, and Ron Rivera on the Washington football team is Hispanic. So you do have three minority coaches, but one African-American coach that's still in the league. Two were fired this offseason, Brian Flores being one of them, and David Culley of the Houston Texans was let go in his first and only season with the team after a 4-13 and record. Okay, I gave you all those numbers. I gave you what the suit is about. If you don't follow sports, some of this may go over your head. But at the end of the day, I want you to get the overall theme of this. Um, the National Football League is a multi-billion dollar business, okay? Um, it's, it's run just like corporate America is run, right? You have different departments from production to programming to marketing to sales, ex- advertising, et cetera, et cetera. And what is happening right now is you're noticing your labor workforce, over 70% of the players in the league are African-American, but the people that are in executive positions, managerial positions is, I just gave you the numbers. <laughs> it's very, very low. And from the coaching profession, it's down to one that's an African-American and then two others that are people of color. Um, what people are trying to articulate, not only in this suit, and you heard Flores say he's trying to change the hearts and minds. We're going to get into that in a second because that is a stupid phrase to say. That's not what you're trying to do. But, uh, and I think he just kind of froze up on television. That's tough. He's doing the morning, as we used to call it at ESPN, the car wash. He's going through a bunch of different interviews. But anyway, um, you want a fair shake. You want to be able to have a fair shake at this. You want to go into an interview knowing that the interview was on the up and up, right? And Flores, through the series of text messages with the Giants, is proving at least according to the suit so far, we'll see if it plays on the court of law, that this wasn't on the up and up. They had already made their selection. My interview was coming up in days later, and they had already leaked out information that I wasn't going to be the guy, but I'm, they're still bringing me in just to suffice with this rule. The NFL is screwed up with the way this rule, its original intention is right. Let's get more people foot in the door. Let's get them an interview. The problem is the makeup. There's only one black owner in the NFL. Everybody else is white people. The majority of the general manager positions or front office director of player personnel positions, et cetera, et cetera, are white people. Um, unfortunately, minorities, African-Americans, we rank down at the bottom. There's, there's a very low percentage of people that are in those positions. And so at the end of the day, you just want a fair shake at this process. And Flores feels like this is the time, his time right now to say, listen, even though I may be throwing away potential head coaching jobs of which, like I mentioned, he's rumored for one of them still. Um, and he could get blackballed from the league just based on the fact, the sheer fact that he is suing <laughs> the entire league and three specific teams. He felt like this was the time to take a stand and really spotlight what only, ha- what not only what's happened to him, but what has happened to other African-American candidates Jim Caldwell, notoriously from the Detroit Lions, who was fired after winning seasons with the Lions. Leslie Fazier from the Vikings, who was kind of let it go on a short lease. And then famously, Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator right now for the Chiefs, who has had his own issues during interview processes. And I'm going to play a clip in a little bit about that exchange, like I mentioned. Nick, 
your takeaways, I gave a huge summation there. Some of that I read, some of that I know off the top of my head because I've been following this and I, you and I have talked offline. I wanted Brian Flores for the Las Vegas Raiders. That was one of the openings that I mentioned of the seven this year. That went to a white candidate, as did the general manager position went to a white candidate as well. Give me some some of your initial takeaways from the suit, from Flores' TV appearances, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that came to mind for me when when Flores was bringing the suit is this sounds this sounds very similar to Kurt Flood uh, for sports fans um, or even fans of just or you know nerds about sports and law. Flood was a former player for the St. Louis Cardinals who had, uh, baseball, obviously, uh, who brought a suit against the major against Major League Baseball to fight against the reserve clause. You know, prior to free agency, players were unable to move on to different teams. Uh, at the time, Flood was going to be traded to a team he didn't want to go to, and decide to say decide that now was the time, or then was the time, uh, to bring an action to bring a suit against Major League Baseball. In the end, it worked. Ultimately, we're in the situation now with baseball, not so much the labor issue, but um, but Flood never played again for doing that. And my reaction when I heard Flores bringing the suit, especially hearing him talk on television, is it's about to happen again. And we can also make this conversation about Colin Kaepernick, too. But um, and unfortunately, we see that historically when black figures raise issues of, of racism or bias in the workplace, that often can result in them never working again. So, um, so I was immediately just sad when I heard heard that I was glad the suit was coming. Um, but I mean, my reaction though was, here's a person who I agree with you was I was hoping for the Vegas position, but um, successful head coach. You know, this was a person who who was successful against the New England, like play like coaching against the New England Patriots. This was a guy who had a successful game plan in the Super Bowl, taking a good offensive team in the Rams and reducing them down to three points. Um, the resume in and of itself is impressive. And this is a person who was strange when he got fired in the first place. This is a person who had multiple winning seasons with a team that really was struggling in the Dolphins and there was no explanation. And then in the, in the days after we found all these kinds of tropes about his inability to work with management. And it really did sound a lot like the angry black man uh, trope was, was hitting uh, Flores. Um, so that was, I mean, that, that's just what stood out to me. You know, the other part there too is, you know, again, statistically, it's a league made up of 70% African Americans. And let's take sports out of the conversation. If I told you, listener, that here's a company that primarily employs black people, but when you look at management, hardly any of them happen to represent the same ethnicity of labor. You'd have to ask yourself why. <laughs> what is the challenge? What stands in the way of people hiring more minority candidates? Um, and this is where it gets tricky because if you're trying to make a case that racism exists in the hiring practices within the NFL, I, I think in any jury case or any case, someone's going to ask for the smoking gun. You know, what is the proof of that? And it's hard to prove. It just happens. It just happens to be a trend, and this is what I would sometimes argue is is a form of covert racism because you're not going to find the owner. There's no email trail that says, "Yeah, we're not, you know we're not ones to hire you know black people." That doesn't exist. <laughs> what racism has been has been replaced with 
is a tacit understanding among people that we tend to lean, we, we have a certain view of people of certain ethnicities. This is the way the owners operate. And what, and it's almost unconscious, unconscious. Like there's something going on that makes you, makes these decisions. I'm not going to get into, I don't want to get so far into who these people have been recently hired, but nepotism plays a huge role. But the, the guy, the Broncos end up getting this time around because after they fired Fangio, son of another NFL coach, you know, Nathaniel Hackett. Um, you look at so many jobs, general managers, uh, coaches, and all of it just points to a network. It's a network of predominantly rich white people that basically hire from people that they know. If you did any form of blind interviews, taking names and faces off of resumes, obviously people would know who it is because if we say, you know, <laughs> offensive coordinator, Kansas City Chiefs, it's like, oh, we know who that is, obviously. But if you did that and you look at the resumes of some of these black coordinators, like Eric Bieniemy, like, um, oh, the name is, thank you. Um, like you can't, it, they're unassailable resumes, but these guys are not getting opportunities. Now, to be fair, left, which walked away from the Jags offer, not that he was going to get off. We don't know if he was going to get offered, but due to the GM was not going to take that position. Um, but we don't have enough of those stories. And, and, and there's something, there's something just wrong going on now, specifically about the giants, that text from Bill Belichick is very telling. You know, if we have a situation now, and I think we, some of us had probably assumed this was the case that sham interviews were going on. Um, our Raiders did that, right? When John Gruden got the offer in 2018, I don't even know who, which black candidates were even interviewed for that. But Mark Davis was very adamant that John Gruden is the guy. Um, and I get it. Listen, as an owner of a team or owner of a, of a organization, you want to make that decision hiring practices, but in a league, or in any organization that's predominantly black, that we're not seeing black people in positions of management, you want to ask why, whatever the why is, just right. why, and what is the proof of that? Yeah. You know, you said a couple of things there um, that I want to touch on. First off, let's go back to the Raider point. You, you're absolutely right. In 2018, the Raiders did suffice the Rooney rule with a minority candidate. I can't tell you who it is. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm sure it's been reported who it is, but I still couldn't tell you who it is. And no, most of the time you get a lot of reporters, beat reporters that were able to leak this information, but everyone knew that the owner wanted to hire a specific white guy that he had a previous relationship with. So you kind of get into this, what is stopping, why, why should I tell a billionaire owner how to spend their money and invest it in a franchise in terms of like who they want to hire, right? If they want a white person to be the face of that franchise, they're entitled to it because it's their money, it's their spend. That's not the issue. It's similar to this Joe Rogan stuff, right? Like it's not the issue. You guys are missing the issue. The point is you're allowed to hire whoever you want, but if you only continue to look at one aisle, you're not seeing the whole supermarket, folks. You don't realize that there's more out there. So how could you know that that person is the right person for you? Now, I want to get into, you said something about labor, workforce, and then upward mobility, right? If you think about it in that perspective, I would argue, well, what's necessarily making a player translate from player to being a coach, right? Because when you start out being a coach, and for those of you who don't know, if starting out being a coach pays very little, if you're a position coach, or even if you're one somebody that's brought in on staff to be 
like clock management, or they give you these type of titles that are like operations coordinators, et cetera, et cetera. You see them all in college where Nick Saban has, you know, almost 15, 16 people on his staff and only nine or 10 of them are actual coaches and the rest of them are kind of coordinators, right? In, in tasks with like being around the program, but this is the way they get their learnings. And guess what? Those folks make like 40, 50 grand, 60 grand, because you why? You have to pay your dues. So to start out in the coaching profession doesn't really pay. Now, so that's a big thing, right? If you, if I just left the league and I was making eight, $9 million a year playing in the league, why would I go to a coaching position making 40, 50 grand a year as my starting salary? I think that could be part and parcel why you, know, uh, you haven't seen upper mobility. Regardless of that though, let's get to the candidates that are now at the forefront of being right there and have not gotten that job. Specifically, I mentioned Eric Bieniemy. He's the offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs. He played in the NFL for a long time. He's been on coaching interviews for a, a, a bunch of different organizations and has not gotten it. Meanwhile, the Kansas City Chiefs continue to have success with their organization. And the head coach, Andy Reid, has tied it directly to Eric Bieniemy. We talked about other qualified candidates. D'Amico Ryans, who's the defensive coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers. He didn't get many interviews this cycle. Obviously, I just talked about Brian Forrest, back to back, back to back, Freudian slip there, back to back winning seasons. And he got fired. I mentioned Jim Caldwell of the Detroit Lions, who had three out of four years of winning seasons recently, almost six, seven years ago. He was let go by the Lions. And it all speaks to why are the African-American coaches either on a shorter leash or not getting the opportunities. I want to play a clip real quick, because if you follow me or if you follow this show, you know, I have cross promoted with my podcast on the analyst.com called check the stats, where I speak with players, coaches, scouts, and trainers and broadcasters alike about how they use sports stats as part of their profession. Um, and I had recently former pro bowl cornerback, James hasty on the show. He played for the chiefs and the jets. And him and Dr. Stephen Kiriton, who's been on this program a bunch, they both started this consulting firm called NJ. NJ is working right now directly with the National Football League and some colleges and conferences to get more minor minority candidates a foot in the door. And the way they're doing it is through this proprietary tool that they have. And it really is like an algorithm. I don't want to speak for how the tool works, but basically it assigns an overall metric and score to a candidate. It takes out the implicit biases that happen with hiring practices. Specifically, we've seen data around names on resumes and the callbacks for people. There's been a famous study that's been done on that. And their firm is working hard to take out all of that implicit biases that somebody would have to reject X candidate versus another candidate. And basically it just grades them on a series of factors. Let's say, you know, in terms of organization, leadership skills, et cetera, et cetera, tangible things and some intangible things assigns them a score and value. Now in this clip, because it's really telling. Okay. And it kind of speaks a little bit to what Flores was talking about with in the suit, alleging that the Broncos didn't take the interview serious and that the giants you know, already had made their selection. So he was walking into a sham interview. Take a listen to what Hasty said after he did some feedback. He did, they did a research study and they talked with a candidate, a minority candidate who had interviewed with a couple of teams. They got feedback from the teams and they got feedback from the candidate. Take a listen to what the feedback was from both sides of this. It feeds into perfectly 
what Flores is alleging in the suit. We, we had a conversation with the, with the league um, a couple of days ago, and uh, I won't mention the name of the individual, but one of the, some of the stuff that they shared with us was some feedback from the interview process, some of the executives and coaches experience. And I want to read some of the feedback that they they were able to hear about their interview process. And it was told in an anonymous way, so they didn't know where the comments were coming from. They just received the feedback. So the coaches said things like this, the goalpost keeps moving, no job description, didn't feel like interview was fair. I felt they just wanted to see my book and use it for someone else. I shared my abilities as a coach, but all they wanted to hear were stories. Okay, that's the coaches. The, the executives and the, or the owners said things like he wasn't prepared, didn't understand the salary cap, didn't know my roster, doesn't know our culture, inappropriate language. All he did was tell stories. All he did was go through the playbook. Mike, I said the playbook doesn't interview well. What, what? That's such a large term. I don't even know how to where to put that. My point is that this is the dynamics of the process as we speak right now. No, it's him. No, it's him. Right. And so what we're saying is everyone's at a point of being defensive. Let's see if we can take out a different take a different approach to this and try to now collaborate. Okay. So, I mean, when I heard that, uh, and I did that interview back in November with, with James Hasty and Dr. Stephen Curriton, uh, you can go check it out on theanalyst.com or wherever you get your podcast. If you just type in, check the stats. Um, I thought that was damning, right? Because it's pretty much what Flores is alleging. If you think about it, right? Flores is saying, Hey, listen, it was a sham interview. I go in there. I'm prepared. I'm ready to do you know, my thing and explain why I can be a leader of men and lead this organization. And they're showing up, you know, drunk, lucid, like he alleges with the Broncos, or they're not giving me a fair shake because they already have the guy who they want hired. Right. So there is no point of me even being here. Um, and when you hear feedback like that, when you hear a candidate saying, um, I didn't think that they took me serious. I, you know, they wanted me to tell stories. And then the executive is saying, Oh, well, all he did was tell stories. It's like, well, he was asked to tell stories. Like, which one is it? There's a huge disconnect. What did you What did you think of what that clip right there that I just played from from former uh, Pro Bowl cornerback James Hasty and what his firm is trying to do with the league? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, uh, full disclosure, I have done, you know, my current company, uh, my previous company, I have I have conducted many interviews. Uh, I've been a part of refining interview processes. Um, thinking about like different ways to to gauge a candidate and what's stunning to me about those two different perspectives is that it seems clear that the interview process i like actually that phrase of of moving the goalposts i i really would ask a executive owner whoever's running whoever plans this interview like what is the what is the structure of it uh you know in my company if someone gets interviewed you know, if I'm asked to do the interview, I know to a T what are the areas that we're going to ask about, um, and you replicate that process for anyone who comes, you know, on Zoom or into your door. What is this? What is used by the league, um, and is it standardized so that there's some clarity? You know, there's 32 teams. Am I supposed to believe that 
again, and you all do the same thing. You all run a football company. Are you all telling me that you all have different ways to gauge people? Because I would call BS on that. Um, I was stunned at the disconnect. And what it tells me is that I don't think either side, honestly, is clear. That that comment that both sides thought it was a negative, that they were asked to tell stories, either requested or did, or did the storytelling, there's a disconnect. So what was the point of that? Right. And I think the point is to keep the process undefined, because this way, the people that you that you really want, you've already made that determination, and and that's and we're at a place where this is perfunctory at best. So, you know, to the candidates who are coming prepared, who are thrown by where these questions are coming from, Mike, we're aware in the NFL draft process the kinds of interviews that executives have done with players, like college players, all these kinds of wild questions. Right. And there's no rhyme or reason for it. Tons of stories and, on that. And in isolation, if I told you that a company's interview process, hiring process, well, let's, we'll, let's put hold off of that. Their interview process is undefined. And oh, by the way, that company happens to be worth upwards of about somewhere between 10 to $15 billion dollars. Any sane person would ask, how do they keep that going? How do you have a pipeline of, of qualified candidates? What it, how do you not have something defined like that? Yeah, you know, I, I, real quick, I want to jump in because, you know, I think about my own hiring practices and I remember working with a great recruiter formerly at another company that said to me, skill set, culture fit. I, those are the only two things that I look for that he said to me as a recruiter. When we bring that person in, can they do the job? Either A, they have the skills to do it or have done something similar at other places. So we can either train them here or they can hit the ground running. And then B, culture fit. And by culture fit, meaning can they get along with the hiring manager? Can they get along with the recruiter? The two people that you'd be meeting with anyway on the interview process. Do you feel like that person can get along with everybody else that's on the team? You know, if we've got to meet a deadline, can you feel like you can trust that person? This has nothing to do with race, skin, color, gender, et cetera, right? It has to do with uh, skill set and culture fit. I've always taken those two things, you know, across any places that I've gone to that have allowed me to hire people. And it's, I think that you just mentioned undefined, right? That's the problem with this, right? And that's what NNJ is working on to try to define it a little bit more. But then I also think, where are they getting their candidates from? The candidate pool right now is very bare as you work your way up from coordinators. And for those of you that don't know the hierarchy in the NFL, you have position coaches, right? So you have a quarterback, a wide receiver, a running back. Those are position coaches. Then you have a coordinator that leads the entire offense or defense or the special teams unit, right? And then you have the head coach. And sometimes you have an associate head coach, a, a number two, a de facto number two who could take over if if the head coach was let go, which the Raiders had this year with Rich Passaccia taking over for John Gruden. Um, so there's nobody African-American, you know, uh, uh, or at least minority candidates. There's not that many at the coordinator level. There's more, a little bit more at the uh, position coach level. But the, the tree, like how is this tree growing, right? Because the candidate pool, where are people getting the candidate pool? Because it, like you said, 
there is some nepotism involved in this, right? We saw Nathaniel Hackett getting hired. His, his dad, Paul Hackett, was a legendary coordinator. I don't know about legendary, but he's a coordinator in this league for, for a long time. But you've seen it with other white candidates, and you don't see that same nepotism applying to other minority candidates. And again, you know, if you guys want to say, look, at the end of the day, you're allowed to hire who you want to hire. We totally get that. What we're saying is you have 32 companies. You have 20% turnover year over year. It's called Black Monday in the National Football League. The first Monday after the NFL season's over, a majority of the time coaches are let go in that cycle, right? This year, 20, 22% of the workforce of, of the of the coaching workforce was let go at the head coaching position. Seven openings out of 32. Okay. If you want to do the quick math, all right, all right 10% is three, you know, 20% six. Anyway. Um, and what happened? Seven openings, five have been filled by white guys, one more is going to another white guy. And then the seventh one. We don't know who it's between right now because they're still kind of in limbo, but it was previously held by a white guy. Like, again, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. Like, and that's the problem. If you're not going to have a fair shake process, how do you expect anybody to take this serious? And then we got to work on the whole thing, like the pipeline of where they're pulling coaches. That's what NNJ is working on. So I wanted to give James Hasty and Dr. Stephen Curtin some spotlight there. They've been doing the, the round of media tours, especially now with this happening, saying, hey, we can help with some of this. Like this is a proprietary tool. It takes out this implicit biases. It, it assigns a score. But here's the thing. Did anybody use them this go around? Because it doesn't look like they did. It looks like, again, the same old, I like this guy for my job. I have my short list of coaches in my back pocket. I don't need a proprietary tool. I know who I want to hire. And and the whole point is, how do you get somebody off of that train of thought of, I know who I want to hire, where it's like, you haven't even seen everybody that's available. Go ahead, Nick. Well, the I mean, the first thing I would respond to is when someone says, well, a company has the right to hire whoever they want to hire. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I And I do agree with that. I would simply ask you that if we are looking at different candidates, please make me please make the argument for me why a candidate in many cases who's less qualified is getting that job. Like I'm going to press you to explain that to me. And because if the argument is, well, they can hire whoever they want. Well, then I would say if the purpose of this in this particular company is to win football games, then wouldn't you put the most qualified candidate through the process or hire the most qualified candidate. And if we're going to go person for person, like a Jim Caldwell, like a Brian Flores, and if, or, or Eric the enemy possibly, and you're not seeing them get hired, then I would, I simply would ask, please explain to me. I want to peel the layers to tell me why Nathaniel Hackett, and I'm sorry to bring him up, but that just was so glaring to me. Right. Um, Especially the situation he's coming out of from Green Bay, and like but it's also it's, like out of left field. Like, well, he's not calling the plays, right, right, right. You, so, what, what are we doing? I, I, and so, again, I, I, well, real quick, because I, I don't want to lose yeah. the audience that doesn't follow sports. But yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. it's mm-hmm. it's it's real simple. Like, um, you you normally get reporters, and similar to news reporters, right? We'll we'll try to say sources are telling me X Y Z, right? In the sports landscape, it's always reporters who say, sources are telling me this person is expected to interview here, expected to interview here. He's a candidate for this X, Y, Z, right? Nathaniel Hackett's name has not come up in anything. At least according to reports, I follow all the big reporters from Adam Schefter to Chris Mortensen to Ian Rappaport, NFL Network. None of these guys had Nathaniel Hackett going to some of these places. And then all of a sudden, he ends up getting a head coaching job. And, And like we mentioned, and here's Brian Flores, a coach who just had back-to-back winning seasons, African-American coach who just got let go. And 
now goes on an interview that he knows is a sham because his former coach is telling him, oh, sorry, I texted the wrong Brian to congratulate him. The, the white Brian Dabble, who was, you know, <laughs> with, with the Buffalo Bills. So, like, I, I want to get and back the to thing about, yeah. And the thing about Dable is Dable's a great coach. Yeah, no, he's a good coach. That In isolation, you look at what's happened with Josh Allen. And again, let's take names off because I don't want to get too nerdy about this. Right, right. But I think Brian Dable's a great candidate. Um, paired against Flores, I mean, I, 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 I think it's an interesting conversation. But if you're telling me that there is evidence and these text messages from coach Belichick are evidence that tells me a decision was made and yet you're continuing to hire people and it happens to be a black, a black candidate. And this is very much in line with the, the Rooney rule that immediately it calls in, into question that if this, if this rule is simply for people to check off the boxes and not actually meaningfully put people on a pathway to becoming head coaches, or in this case, being a, a head coach with another, another team, then there's something into extremely wrong here and the league needs to step in. But again, you know, this is a league like many sports leagues where this is a powerless commissioner. This person simply works for the owners. So when we talk about what's wrong with the league and what can be done for any fan or anyone who's just curious about how this, how the NFL works, ask yourself, are you going to have a majority of 32 owners who willingly give a damn to see change? Right. History tells me the answer is no. So this, this is a question of, if they don't want change, then as fans, as viewers, as whatever you want to call us, then what is our response when we're seeing bias clearly playing itself out in the league? And we have decisions to make as as where we spend our entertainment dollars. Right. You know, and that for and that's by the way, a great segue as we wrap here. But if if you're wondering, well, why would you talk about a topic that is really not in your news commentary wheelhouse? You, know, you guys have all these correspondents and stuff like that on from news sectors. This is a huge deal in terms of, you know, again, I mentioned 58 page lawsuit filed in Manhattan federal court. This is a, a class action suit against a league, against three teams, discrimination, racism at the core of the allegations, right? There's uh, evidence that's being introduced with text messages, sham interviews. There's also now a scandal, like I mentioned, as part of this of paying somebody to lose on purpose, right? Which is a kind of against, you know, the conventional norms of why you play sports, right? You, you play to win the game, to quote the famous Herm Edwards quote. But uh, a lot of this is going to come out in the coming weeks. We actually have a legal expert coming on the show uh, in the coming weeks to promote a book, but we'll ask her about that and, and her takeaways, because this is going to be really interesting because if something shakes out from this class action suit as, you know, as a civil matter uh, and something shakes out and moves the needle and Brian Flores, let's say gets compensation. The question is, will he ever get another coaching job? Because we all know he's qualified. I mentioned he's had back-to-back -back winning seasons, but will he be blackballed, right? Like, will he not get another opportunity? And what does this do for future people that are now coordinators that are not getting the fair shakes? Like, how does the league try to amend the Rooney rule and try to actually give people a fair shake? And then how do you, how do you, the, the latter part, which we've talked about, how do you convince somebody that knows they want to hire somebody else to just interview somebody else for the sake of interviewing somebody else? All of that stuff will get sorted out. Maybe, maybe not. We don't have a great track record with it so far, but like I mentioned, James Hasty. Dr. Stephen Curriton are trying to do something about it with their consulting firm. You can check out, check out their work, nnj.com. Uh, speaking of .com, 
youtube.com. You want to watch the video of our interview with Amy uh, McKinnon and all the great work she's doing at foreignpolicy.com. Our thank yous to her. Check that out. Uh, can we please talk over on the YouTube channel, audio podcast platforms you know by now. Please leave us a five-star review and comment. Shout out to our hosting platform, Acast. As always, they are fantastic. And our new sponsor, we mentioned them at the top of the show, bonescoffee.com. Go to bonescoffee.com right now. K-cups, tumblers, mugs, whatever you want to buy. It doesn't matter. Get it. The coffee is delicious. But here's the best part. Enter in promo code. Can we please talk at the at, at the checkout page and you're going to get 15% off that entire order. Our gift to you. Uh, we are back in the coming weeks with more great episodes and fantastic guests that span across the globe. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And always just excited to engage in these conversations in, in all spaces, sports, politics, what have you. We have it all. Can we please talk? I'm Nick Saveri. That's right. See everybody next time. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.